Well, it's, uh, it's July 4th weekend, and we love America. We love the land of America. We love the people of America. We love the national heritage, even the spiritual and historic heritage of America. And uh, on a weekend like this, my mind just uh, it always seems to go back to a little burg, a lot like uh, little towns all across our state, a little burg in, in Ohio uh, called Utica, near where... Uh, my grandpa's farm was, and we'd often find ourselves there on a weekend like this. And, and there would always be that parade. We'd always get to the parade. You'd always have the flag coming down the street and those, uh, that honor guard with the flag. And, and uh, my grandpa or my dad would always elbow me to get on my feet and take off my hat and put my hand on my heart. And then the veterans would always have a tear in the corner of their eye. And then there would be those fellows with the drum and bugle corps making all that noise. And there would be the, F, uh, the uh, 4-H and some of their little animal projects that they would be bringing down the street. And then there would be the future farmers of America. You could always tell them because they had little short red, b- blue corduroy jackets on. But if you're raised in the downriver, you never saw the future farmers of America jackets, I suppose. Then there were kids with their bicycles decorated or with their dogs in costume. And then there was always the, the volunteer fire department throwing candy to the kids. It was a little slice of Americana, I remember. In Utica, the Velvet Ice Cream Company was one of the big employers. And so they had a refrigerated truck that they would always drive down the street. Do you guys remember this? They would pass out ice cream to everybody that was at the parade in Utica. It was uh, like a Norman Rockwell print. Just a beautiful thing to enjoy. When I was with my own grandchildren, some of my own grandchildren yesterday, and it was just a beautiful day. And the Lord gave us a beautiful weekend for to think about our nation and our God and our family. And I just wonder what kind of America that my grandchildren are going to grow up in. And you must think that too. I fear it will look less like a Norman Rockwell print and a little bit more like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And those who love America the most are the most troubled about America's future today. And I listed some reasons why people who love America really probably ought to be troubled about America today. Because our children will face these problems, and these problems threaten to crush our children and our grandchildren. Like the unemployment problem, and the underemployment problem, and the banking issues, and the mortgage issues, and corrupt leaders in every area of leadership in our country, government, business, education, and yes, even the church. This ongoing warfare all the time, just a boiling cauldron of warfare around the world that most of those places were involved in those And there is the constant ongoing threat of militant Islam. There's terrorism and the threat of terrorism and natural disasters and abortion and divorce and racial bigotry that continues even today. Even though it's kind of forced underground, it's still there. And racial tensions are very painful and very real. And they threaten to blow up in our country. Drug abuse and drunkenness and alcoholism and the legalization of drugs and the struggle of single-parent families. Education is in crisis and chaos and 
even though some of the finest people in America are working in that, they would be the first to, 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 to admit that there are great challenges in every level of education and public education in America. There's escalating crime in America, bizarre, depraved crimes. They're on a scale like we've never seen them before. America is losing its standing in the world. It's, there's a growing hatred for America and for Americans around the world. There's the threat of nuclear attack, and now it's not just the superpowers that have the ability to threaten us with nuclear attack. Um, but there is the challenge to biblical values, biblical and historic Christian values. There's a diminishing support of Israel among the leaders of our land, which has never happened before. There is the issue of immigration and the inequities that are connected to that and the troubles that are connected with that. There's the open and public practice and endorsement of immorality. Take, for instance, a television program that you've been you've decided to binge watch on Netflix, and it really is engaging and scary and wonderful, and it's entertaining. And so you watch the first three or four episodes, and you get to liking the protagonist characters, the good people, the good guys. You get to liking them. And then after you get to liking them, you, you realize that on the fifth or the sixth installment of that show that you're binge-watching that they openly practice a moral perversion. And that was tricky, wasn't it? And there's the redefinition of marriage by the Supreme Court, which ought to put a shockwave in everyone's heart who really knows and loves the Lord and believes the Bible. And there's the popularity of false prophets. that have, They've always had false prophets, but in America, false prophets are getting a huge following now. And then there is the need for a spiritual awakening. That's like my little short, depressing list. And we call ourselves one nation under God. We know the Scriptures teach, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We know the Scriptures say this in Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If you study your Bible... And you look in Proverbs, sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I think it's the first 14 verses that talk about God's blessing on a nation that obeys God and who honors God and who honors God's covenant. And, and, and it's like God will pursue them with blessing. Then when you get to verse 15, it takes a very dark turn. And it begins to describe some of the things that will happen in a nation that turns away from God. It is literally so bad that I read it yesterday and I thought, I don't want to read Deuteronomy 28 publicly because some of the things that Deuteronomy 28 says are just so vile and so sad and so heartbreaking that it would make you very, very uncomfortable for me just to simply take Deuteronomy 28 and read it out loud to you. But if you're discerning and the Holy Spirit lives in you and you believe your Bible, then you almost have to say, What you see in the second half of Deuteronomy 28 is happening in the nation that we love today. Why this chaos? And what should we do? Well, the Bible does have an answer about this, and it's very, very clear. Because more and more people are rejecting God's law and have become a law unto themselves. So so here are are my three points today. I'll tell you what they are so that you can kind of follow the structure of my diatribe today. One, when people are a law unto themselves, nations descend into chaos. When people are a law unto themselves, nations descend into chaos. We have many examples of that in the Bible, but I'll give one in the message. And then secondly, this was true in Israel, and there are examples in Israel. And the second point is that God put into Israel 
a longing for King David. Put into Israel historically, a longing for King David. I'll explain why it's important in a minute. And then, and then finally, what I'll talk about is that our nation, when we, we who are discerning will admit that it's in spiritual and national and moral decline, God also wants to put a longing in our heart for a great king too. So that's what we'll talk about here today. When people are longing to themselves, nations descend into chaos. Just think about this. Let me give you just a biblical illustration of this. In the book of, uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, you have an interesting couple of books that are together, Joshua and Judges, right? And you read Joshua, if you remember, when you read Joshua and you get to the end of Joshua, you know, there, there's a, this conquest and so forth. It ends kind of nice. It's kind of good reading. It ends the way a movie ought to end. You ever go to a movie that doesn't end the way a movie ought to end? Like, the hero doesn't ride off with his girlfriend into the sunset or something. It doesn't end the right way. And you think, I want my money back. When you get to the end of Judges, you want your money back. I've literally felt that way. Like, why did this end like this? You remember what Judges reads like? It's really kind of an interesting thing if you read Judges. Let me give you a quick outline of Judges. You have, in Judges, you have the people, have been, the, the people of Israel have been given a land, and they're supposed to go in to the land, and they're just simply to possess that land. They're supposed to take what God has given to them. And, and, and they, had, they had wicked enemies of God who were vile and wicked enemies of God that they were supposed to defeat in the land. And yet they settled for incomplete victories. They settled for incomplete victories. As a result, that's what chapter 1 through chapter 3 talk about. It they, talks about this incomplete victory. And then they have a series of temporary deliverance. And God raises up imperfect judges. That's why the book is called Judges. So what God does, and these are like military judges, they're leaders and they're military leaders, and God raises up these judges, and the judges help the people to gain a foothold and to obey the Lord, and then they disobey, and then there's a downward spiral. And then in the book of Judges, this whole thing spirals downward. In other words, with every cycle, there's cycles in the book of Judges, and with every cycle, if you read just the literature of the book, you see that things get worse and worse and worse, and people tolerate worse and worse and worse things. This is exactly what happens in Judges. It's very important that God put this book in our Bible. We're to understand it. So there are these 12 judges in 12 cycles. And then that's in chapter 3, verse 8 through chapter 16, these 12 judges and the 8 cycles there. But then in chapter 17 through 21, you have this descent of the nation into anarchy and debauchery. And because God's people have settled for token victories, the land is filled with really bad things. Anarchy, immorality, unspeakable kinds of things that when you read them, they're very unpleasant to read. And then this is kind of how it ends. And maybe it kind of climaxes to the worst of those things, and then it just ends abruptly. And you're left with a horrible feeling like, what? They begin to assimilate the values of their godless culture about them. Instead of introducing other people to God, other people introduce pagan practices to them. That's what happens. Men begin to abandon leadership. It's really an interesting thing. When I was a boy and I read the book of Judges, it really confused me. I'd read it over and over again, and I just never could really kind of get a handle on why it didn't kind of wrap up in a neat moral way. It didn't have a nice ending that that gave uh, the moral of the story is kind of ending. And women did stuff that other places of the Bible said they weren't supposed to be doing. It's interesting when you book a... And as a matter of fact, as I study this more carefully, I study this thoroughly, I realized that what women do in the book of Judges is a part of the literary kind of secret of the book. It's part of the literary message of the book. 
So women are called upon to have to do things they shouldn't even have to do because the, the nation is in decline, then, and women historically do that. They tend to just step in and do what needs to be done. And so you have these stories in the book of a man that's supposed to go to war, but his, he won't go without his wife, and his wife is really, Deborah, is really the hero, and he's kind of like bearing her armor. It, it, there's this woman, Jael. She's famous for nailing a guy in the head. It's a great story. It would make a really good movie. She drives a stake through a guy's head. It wouldn't be rated G, but she, that's what she does. Jail, nail, I always remember that. In chapter 9, in verse 53, there's a certain woman. She's not named, but this mighty man comes up to the, to the parapet and she throws a rock off and hits him in the head and kills him. And for somehow that makes its way into the narrative. And then... And then of course, there's this famous woman, Delilah, and you know all about her. Every time a woman, this is not to be mean to women, that's not the idea. The Bible is not mean to women, it's quite the opposite. But every time a woman services in the book of Judges, the point is being made here that when a cultural spirals away from God, all the roles are scrambled up. Women are called upon to do things they shouldn't even have to do. Men should defend their country. That's what the Bible teaches. You have sexual perversions. You have violence and brutality in Israel. You have the breakdown of civil order. You have taking wives. Daniel's here with us today. And Wes, back from a far country. Daniel bought a ring and he gave it to Caitlin Thornton. Caitlin is with the girl with Dan. They're engaged now. I wove that deftly into my message. He actually got permission from her mom and her dad. He didn't just drag her off by the hair, right? She's here willingly, right, Caitlin? She's here willingly with us this weekend because he, he won her heart. That's not the way it is in this culture. In that culture, it was um, a breakdown of civil order. When you say taking wives, we're talking about like going into the village and capturing wives. Have you ever heard of that happening? Well, yeah, that's happening in, in godless, wicked, chaotic, God-hating cultures even today, the infighting, which begins with inquiring about which tribe would go up against the enemies and ends with inquiring with God about going to war with the tribe of Benjamin. They've got infighting. So all these things happen, you see. So what, what's the point? Okay, here's the point. Why, why did I say this? I'm using judges uh, and Israel as an example to, to instruct us in a very similar time. Here's uh, judges in Israel, during the time of the judges, is spiraling away from God and down away from God. And all the time then, the, the story is that, that continuously it, they, they raise up a judge. A judge calls the people to faithfulness. If the people repent, then there's a, there's a temporary restraining of God's judgment. And then they go back into it again, and then it gets worse, and they just spiral down. And the book is supposed to read ugly. Because that's what happens when people defy God. The culture that they live in begins to spiral downward in a terrible way, and more and more bad things begin to happen. But there is a little refrain that's built into Judges, and I want to show it to you. So take your Bible and, 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 and look at the book of Judges, and I want to show you something. It's a literary device that the author uses and the purpose of the literary device is to cause Israel to long for a king who's appointed by God. And you see it in Judges, and um, you see it in, in chapter 17. It begins. It's in this, during this time of anarchy and hatred for God. 
It just it gives a little commentary. It's almost like an aside. It says in chapter 17 and verse 6, after a particularly difficult time, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. In that day, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. So people, there was a bit of anarchy. It's like, the king isn't going to tell me what to do. The, God's laws are going to tell me what to do. I'm going to decide what to do. Well, what's interesting in the Bible is when something's repeated, it's repeated for emphasis. Look in chapter 18 and verse 1. What does it say there? In those days, there was no king in Israel. It's repeated in chapter 19 and verse 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then when you get to chapter 21, it is so ugly. Oh, no, they're literally doing things that are just, you can't, you don't even really want to talk about them in mixed company. You really don't want to talk about them in public. When you get to the end of this book, it's like, I remember in, I was in study hall. When I first remember reading this as an, as an adult, I was probably 14 and I was in study hall. And I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what my Bible looked like because I read that. I remember just reading it and then pushing my Bible back and thinking, what is the point of that? That they would literally cut up this woman and mail her parts around to the different tribes. And then the book ends. And then it says in verse 25, in the last verse, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, so everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Here's the literary point, was God is trying to use these stories to stir up a longing for a king. Because he's going to appoint King David, who is a type of a greater king. He wants God's peace. God, listen, please listen carefully to what I'm saying. God did not design you to operate on your own and under your own authority. You're not made that way. None of us are. We have a king, and we're in a kingdom. And so it was with Israel. God wanted them to long for a king and for the right kind of governance. And so the book is, the stories are, are beautifully put together by God in order that the people would recognize that they were made to long for a king. And this is what God began to stir up in their hearts. So God wanted Israel to long for a king. Look in Judges chapter 2 and you'll, you'll see that. Judges chapter 2 is a bit of a summary, really, of the whole thing. And you would see this all through Judges uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 7 through 23. But look at verses 7 through 10 in particular. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him with the within the border of his inheritance at Timnath, Harry's, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor work, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And that was like a historic summary of what's happening. So you had this generation that knew the Lord. And then when this generation died, another generation came up that didn't know the Lord. And that's the, the phrase that they used. The generation, the generation didn't know the Lord. And the Bible also says in verse 10, and the generation didn't remember what God had done. God wanted Israel to long for King David. Now, 
track with this because it's very relevant to us today in America and us right now. For years, because I didn't understand this book, I didn't get this part. But Judges is just showing what anarchy is going to look like. Judges is just showing what it looks like in a nation that's turned away from God. So Judges is showing what's going to happen in America if America doesn't turn back to God. It's interesting because the lovely story of Ruth actually happens during this time, and it's the next book of the Bible. And, and the trajectory of the literature of Ruth is what? It's, Ruth is a beautiful love story that's talking about redemption that's pointing toward a coming king and the, the, uh, it's the, the preparation of King David there. And so then first, the next books of the Bible are First and Second Samuel. And what are First and Second Samuel all about? They're all about the, 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 the kingdom in Israel and the appointment of the king that, that God ordained. And that's what's true. So, so you say, well, what do I do when I look at my grandchildren in America today? What do I do when I long for them to enjoy the kind of America I, that, that, that I uh, believe would be a good place for them to raise their families and their grandchildren. How do I respond when I see this kind of thing that's happening in America? It's not just touching us. It's not just distant. It's, it's up close. It's personal. It's touching every one of our lives and every one of our families in, in very deep ways. What do you do? Well, when a nation is in moral and spiritual decline, it needs to look for its authority in a king. And there is a king who is greater than David. David was a type of this king. And God's answer for a time like this is for his people to have embedded deeply in their souls this unquenchable longing for a king, King Jesus. You say, how do I personally live? How if I'm the grandkid? How do I, how am I going to be, how am I going to walk with God in a time like this? To have within your heart a longing for the king, which means he tells you what to do. You don't tell him what you want to do, which means you look to him and to his word for your orders in life and that you recognize him as a loving and benevolent king who has your best interest at heart and his glory at heart. And you do what he says because he is the king. You don't listen to what other people say say is right or wrong or what they think, you, you read what God says is right or wrong and what God thinks because if you're wise in a time like this, when a culture is in decline, you will look to God and you'll look to his word and you will long for King Jesus to rule your life. That's what the Bible actually says because you see, Jesus is the reigning king of heaven and he will be the coming king to heaven and earth. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know the whole world right now lies under the power of the evil one. John 18, 36, Jesus said it this way, My kingdom isn't of this world. That's why we have this conflict right now. In Luke chapter 1, in the genealogies, it says about he will be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. This is our king. Jesus is our king. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So if you're discouraged, if you're, dis, if you're brokenhearted about the trajectory of our nation, remember that you can be the subject of a king who will reign forever. You can be a part of the kingdom that will never end. In, in Matthew 25... And 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, He'll sit on the throne of His glory. In Matthew 19, it says, Assuredly, I say unto you, Jesus said, in that generation, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, those of you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Do you see this? He's broadening this. He's widening this to us. You 
can, you can reign with the king who will eternally reign. Your heart must long for a king. 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king, immortal, invisible, the God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's about Jesus. And then he gets to 1 Timothy 6 and Paul says, he is the blessed and only potentate. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and he alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. To whom be honor and everlasting power forever. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, again it says, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him, I'll give power over the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. They'll be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's quoting Psalm 2. As also I have received from my father, Revelation chapter 5, and have made us kings and priests to God who will reign on the earth. And Revelation chapter 20, I saw thrones and those who sat on them and judgment committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness. The souls of them who had been beheaded for their witness. Did you hear that? To Jesus and for the word of God. The souls of those beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hearts. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. So you see what he's saying? He wants you. You you live in a time of national chaos. You live in a time of national anarchy. You, You live in a time of moral decline. You live in a time when people hate God. A time when people reject God. What should you do? You should have a longing in your heart for the king who's going to one day set things right. And never forget it. And live every day with the law of the king on your heart. With the love of the king in your heart. Listening to the king. Learning from the king. Looking forward to living with the king. That's what you do in a culture like ours. We're not without instruction. We have the word of God and the stories of the word of God. Jesus told a story about a king in Luke chapter 19. And this king, this leader had a representative. He was going to go away to a far country and his representatives, he gave a stewardship of money. He said, I want you to run my kingdom while I'm gone, but I'm going to come back. And then there were people that when this when this leader went away, people resisted the authority of those that he left in charge. Some of them were faithful stewards. Some of them were not faithful stewards. Some of them said this, we will not have this man to rule over us. So the Bible says, Jesus does, this is the happy little bedtime story that Jesus told. He said, so when the ruler came back, what did he do? When the ruler came back, he rewarded those who were faithful while he was gone. And he, and he killed those who were not, who resisted his rule. He judged those who resisted his rule. So you see, the world is really hard to figure out right now. There is a God. His son is Jesus. He's the king of the entire universe. You want to make sure you're on his side. And in the end, you win. And you don't get judged or killed or sent to hell, but you're eternally with the Lord. How hard is that to understand? Well, you say, I don't understand. Well, that you need a spiritual enlightenment. That's what Jesus is saying. He's invited you to be a part of his kingdom rule. Listen to this, Romans 8, 17. And if children, heirs, and joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him and be glorified forever. This is a promise of the Lord. How do you get an inheritance that belongs to Jesus? Be, be rightly related to him through salvation. And you're a part not only of his kingdom, but you're part of his family. Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Do you see how simple that this is? How clear and simple this is when you think of it like this? 
If you want to know God by heart, you have to know the God of the Bible, who is the King of Kings, who is the Lord of Lords. So he should be America's King. He should be this church's King. He should be your family's King. And he should be your King. And that's pretty simple. And that's why he taught us to pray. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see that knowing God by heart doesn't mean that you'll have warm, sentimental feelings toward him all the time. It doesn't mean that you occasionally attend a ceremony, maybe once a week, or if you don't have something better to do that has really little or no effect on the rest of your life. That's not what a king... A king demands your highest loyalty. A king has captured your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And you and I are a part of his loyal resistance in the world today. That should fire you up if you know the Lord. We're a part of the resistance. We live in a place where Jesus isn't king, but he's going to be king. But for now, he's watching for the people who are a part of his loyal resistance. I want to be a part of the loyal resistance to the coming king who's going to rule the earth someday. Anybody in the room fired up about that today? I want to be a part of a kingdom that will never, never end. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Do you really believe that? We're about to find out who really believes that in our nation. Because when it starts to hurt, when it starts to, when it starts to get costly, there are people who will say, I'm really my king, and I'm not going to follow any other king. I will not have that man to rule over me. He's not going to tell me how to live. He's not going to tell me what to believe. He's not going to tell me what's right and wrong, because Jesus isn't their king. But he's invited you to be a part of the loyal resistance. He's captured your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. He wants you to work continually for the cause of King Jesus. He wants you to long for the king. He wants you to know the king by heart. And that is, to know a king just means, a, 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 especially a perfect and benevolent and eternal king, like our King Jesus, means that our hearts lean into that and obey that. So he's the reigning king from heaven. He's the coming king of earth. He's the future king of the ultimate kingdom of heaven and earth. So is he the king of your heart? Is he really? You love his law? That's kind of how you know. Even when you fail, do you long to obey what he says? Even if you have competing desires in the darkest places of your own soul, do you still say, but God is king. His word is true and right. And I'll ask him to give me the power and strength to obey him, even though a big part of me fights against it all the time. This isn't a political thing where we're trying to outvote the bad guys. This is an internal thing in your soul every day. Will you serve the king? Do you, do you know the old song? We used to sing this, this old hymn based on Exodus. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers other lives to bring? Remember that song? Who is on the Lord's side? That's the question I'm asking you today. Whose side are you really on? It's not really important that you answer me, but the king is going to show up and you're going to answer to him face to face someday. One day you will look the king in the eye and the king will look you in the eye. And what pitiful regret it would be if looking the king in the eye, you knew and he knew that you were not his loyal subject. You were not his follower. You were not his lover. You, were not, you didn't long for him. You didn't long for his kingdom. You had your own idea. What a terrible thing. What a tragic thing that would be. Is Jesus really your king? Does your heart really beat fast at the name of Jesus? Do your hands tremble when you pick up his word? 
Do you long for the things of God to be loved by the people of God in a nation like ours? I remember a story from childhood. This is one of the reasons why I love stories so much is because they're so memorable. From my little childhood in this little country church in Logansville, my dad took the pulpit one day. And this is the story as I remember it. So he's a woman in a little cottage, in a little countryside cottage in England. And the rain is just pouring down as it so often does in that part of the country. And so a stranger stops by and knocks on her door. And she comes to the door and the stranger, who's obviously a servant, says... I need an umbrella. I'm, we're caught in the rain and we need, and my master needs an umbrella. Could you please loan me an umbrella for my master? Well, she has two. She has a new umbrella and an old umbrella that has holes in it. It's kind of torn. She gets the old umbrella to give to the servant, to give to the servant's master, whoever this is, and then she forgets about it until a number of days or weeks later, here comes an entourage up to the front door and obviously... A, a servant of a, of a very great master returns the umbrella and says to her, the queen wants me to tell you that she appreciates the loan of your umbrella. And then she says, if I had known it was the queen, I would have given her my best. That's going to happen to us someday. Someday the king is going to return and he's going to say, if we are, and we're going to say, if I had known it was the king, I would have given it. This will answer a lot of the questions that might come up in your mind these days. What does the king say about it? Who cares what CNN and Fox News say about it? Nobody cares what CNN. They blabber 24 hours a day. They never stop talking. What does the king say about it? Doesn't matter what I say about it. You can say amen to that. Doesn't matter what I say about it. I'm a servant of the king. I'm trying to read what he said. Trying to be accurate and faithful. I'm praying and asking God, help me tell the people what you want me to tell the people. Doesn't matter what I think. Matters what the king said. Doesn't matter what the court says. Matters what the king said. Doesn't matter what all the people think if they can outvote you. Doesn't matter. That's, that's the way it is with Christians throughout time. They haven't lived in Christian nations. They lived in pagan nations. And they flourished in pagan nations who hate God. Is Jesus the king of your tongue? Is Jesus the king of your thoughts? Is Jesus the king of your sex life? Is he the king of kings to you? Is he the king of your credit card, your checkbook, your wallet, your future? Is Jesus the king of your schedule? Is he your king Monday through Friday? Here's what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians. Listen listen carefully. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9. This is a New Testament passage about what Jesus is like Listen carefully now as I read the Bible to you. To give you who are troubled rest with us. This is 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. To give you our troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. You get that? That's not like... That's not just a figurative thing. Jesus is literally coming in the heavens with his mighty angels. Revelation 20 is a description of that. King of kings and Lord of lords, it says on his chest when he comes. And the New Testament is saying here, when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Here's what we have in America today. People that want to take the happy, feel-good parts of the Bible and claim them. 
And people that want to take the parts about Jesus' justice and righteousness and disagree with them or not read them or not believe them. So the king comes. He will come. The king who made the earth and who made you and who made your heart and your mind and who gave you all the good things he's ever given you will also come. He's given you a stewardship to obey him. He's going to ask what you've done. And when the king comes, he comes to reward the faithful and to annihilate those who didn't follow him. I didn't say it. That's what the Bible says. Heavenly Father, I pray for these who are here today and this one who stands here in the pulpit. Oh, that we would know that Jesus is our king. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed just so we have a private time. I want to ask you a question. While I'm preaching today and I'm talking about this, I wonder if you would be willing to extend this message out through the week. Try not to stop thinking about it when we dismiss and we talk about what we're, whatever we're doing the rest of the weekend. But would you think about it through the week and just keep asking yourself, I want to know God by heart. Well, then just say all throughout the week, this is my assignment. Jesus, are you really my king? Are you my king? Are you my king? Are you my king? Do I listen to my king? Do I learn from my king? Do I look to my king? Do I long for my king? Am I going to eventually live with my king? Or is that king going to come and judge me? Wouldn't that be worthwhile? And some of you today, maybe even right now, you know that Jesus isn't your king. He isn't your savior. He isn't your master. And he isn't your Lord. And, and may, although, though maybe some have thought he was because you have done religious things. I'm just saying, uh, today wouldn't it be a wonderful day to have a day of spiritual dependence on the Lord and say, I've made Jesus my king. I've entered into his kingdom through belief and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to ask you to just examine your own heart, and then I'm going to, uh, that you would pray that the Holy Spirit would give you really strength to, to live as loyal subjects of the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful nation, how beautiful it is, how beautiful the geography of our nation, just the vast land and the beauty and the natural resources, the human resources, the people of our land, the national heritage and history, the spiritual heritage, a missionary nation, a sending nation, a nation with churches dotting every every street corner, every city, and every village, every hamlet, every countryside. And yet, still, we would admit a nation that's beginning to lose its spiritual bearings. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people that pray for revival, people that have a prophetic voice in our time, people that examine our own sin and confess our sin and show people what it looks like to be humble and broken and confessing sin. And today, I pray for that one or those that are here today that... that it's really clear that Jesus isn't their king. Help them see that. that, that and, and I pray that you would be their king and that they would receive you as their king. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we